Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. Today's episode is the introduction episode to season three, where we will discuss international student mobility. I'm excited that our guest today is none other than Karen Fisher, senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education, well known in the international education space for her journalism on the topic, particularly through her weekly newsletter, Latitudes. In this episode, we set the stage for the remaining discussions of the season, starting with a brief overview of terms used when discussing international student mobility, then discussing trends Karen is noticing in the space. It is no surprise that Karen set up our season well. One of the main takeaways I had from our conversation is that while geopolitics can disrupt the flows of international students, and sometimes create significant barriers for some students to study in different countries. International students are simultaneously considered to be the hope for improving these geopolitics in the future. I also enjoyed asking Karen a final question about this upcoming season and hearing her response. On behalf of the thesis team, please enjoy this first episode of season three. Hello and welcome to season three of Thesis, where we will be discussing the international mobility of students. Today we are joined by Karen Fisher, a prominent journalist reporting on international education for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. I'm glad to be here. We're super happy that you're here because you cover, you've covered this topic and you look at different parts of the world as well, even though you're based in the United States. So really excited to kind of get your sense of what the overall trends are in this particular part of international education. But before we get to the trends, since part of our target audience is people who are probably hopefully using this podcast as a educational tool for themselves to learn more about higher education, we're going to kind of quickly get some of these main definitions relevant to international student mobility out of the way, just so that everybody's on the same page. So with that in mind, can you tell us what kind of international students are there and how many students are internationally mobile today? Sure. So there's about 6 million and change, 6.3 or so million internationally mobile students, according to the latest UN numbers, which do lag a little bit. So I would suspect those numbers are probably slightly higher today. What do we mean by internationally mobile? Let me back up and say, by this, we really mean students who are crossing borders, crossing international borders for a degree program. So one thing that that number does not count, for example, is students who are going abroad on shorter term exchanges or in the American parlance study abroad, education abroad, who are going for perhaps an academic term, perhaps a year. They are not typically counted in the, those numbers. The other thing it doesn't count, which maybe we can talk about later, it's very focused on the student's mobility. So it's not focused on the mobility of the education itself. So it does not count students, for example, who are studying foreign degree programs that they may study in their own home country or in the country regionally. Those students, you know, who are not going to the, the campus internationally of that institution, those are referred to typically as transnational students or transnational education. So that's not counted here. So really, we're talking about students who are getting a visa, they're going to another country, and they're studying for a degree program. What do we know about them? Uh, dominantly, the largest group of students come from Asia. Within the OECD countries, about 60% of students are coming from, from Asia. And there we're talking China, India as the, the biggies. We know in terms of percentages of students 
African students are the ones who are most likely to cross borders, and we can talk about the reasons why in a minute. We know that when you look at international students as a share of the overall student populations in countries, that the largest share or the ones who count for the largest share are at the PhD level, about a quarter of students, PhD students within OECD countries are international, um, about 15% of master's degree students are, and a much smaller portion, only about 5% of doctoral st- or, or bachelor's degree students are, sorry, getting ahead of myself. So undergraduate students are are less likely to be international. That doesn't mean, however, that their numbers aren't great because obviously we're talking about percentages and far fewer people are studying for doctorates than are studying for a undergraduate degree. So let me stop there and um, let you ask some more questions. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting because uh, I didn't know kind of all of those caveats actually to what we mean by that, the UN numbers, essentially the big 6.3 million or so. So I do want to put into context for just for the audience that we will probably through the season, we're hoping to also touch on some of the more quote unquote short term study abroad participants. So students who go across for an academic term, possibly even shorter programs a couple of weeks. It's good to know that we have all of these different kinds of ways of defining a student who might cross borders. And I also just think it's so interesting, actually, fun fact, in Norway, PhD candidates are not considered students. They're considered staff members. So they get paid. <laughs> but it's just interesting always because most people in the rest of the world talk about PhD students and they are part of this student population. Sometimes I don't always think of them that way, but I digress. Why, Karen, are international students important? Also, vice versa, why is it important to send students outside of your own country? Why is this important for society or for other stakeholders, politicians? This this is a question we're going to be asking quite a number of our guests. So I'm curious if you can share kind of what the overall broad trend or picture is on that question. Let me take this like at the very the the very most basic level, which is the individual student, the individual student or family. Generally speaking, they are going abroad for opportunity. Obviously, some of these students are going abroad or the cultural experience, and that is too also an opportunity to, to learn. But frankly, many of them are going abroad because either the academic opportunities in their home countries aren't optimal for one reason or another. Either there's just not enough provision that supply does not meet the demand, or the quality is not there. And so perhaps there are enough institutions, but these students would like to go to a better ranked institution or a more academically rigorous institution and the competition for that is greater in their country. And then the other motivation is the longer term return on investment. These students or their families may see education as a way to a better life and it can be a a way to a better life returning to their home country and being more competitive in the workforce. It can also mean a pathway to migration. So there are definitely different students who are thinking about that in different ways, and and that's important to consider. Then you take the next sort of level of actors, which is the institution. The universities have different reasons for wanting to either bring in students from overseas or even send them from overseas. I mean, at the the doctoral level, for example, the exchange of students is is a very good way to sort of cement longstanding research ties. You have a lot of students who will come, get their doctorate, go back to their home country, go to another country, and they will have these sort of bonds. And this is a great sort of mechanism for research collaboration. Also, and this is 
isn't true for all countries because some countries do not charge tuition, but in many of the traditional destination countries um, for international students, they, it is a financial consideration because they, they often pay higher student fees than the domestic students do. And so that's important. It also can be important for some of these destination countries, frankly, because of demographic reasons. These students are filling in for um, a decreasing uh, college age, university age population, or in the longer term, they may be important to the, the workforce. And so they're seen as critical to the economy. And then let's go up to that that higher level, which I guess I kind of uh, was already segueing into, which is why do countries want to either send students out or bring students in? There are a number of countries that send students out that have funded government scholarship programs and that see international mobility, getting their students to get that kind of provision of education as a way of jumpstarting their own economic development. You know, this has historically been the case dating back more than, you know, a century. You had China, for example, sending students to the United States and to Britain and then bringing them back. And those were sort of were people who were helping modern the economy there. I think countries can also want to to bring in students for similar reasons. You have a number of, of countries, Canada, Australia, for example, where uh, people who come as students, migration is, is a very important. And then, then I think there are some bigger, harder to quantify reasons that you might want to send students abroad or receive students if you're a society or a government, which is sort of that idea that exchanges knowledge and that knowledge of others is, is a way to build bridges. And so this sort of notion of, of cultural exchange, either helping people understand your country better, helping you understand other countries better, and that students can be kind of that pathway to, to more mutual understanding across across cultural difference. And so with that all in mind, now I want to get into the trends and the changes that are that you might be seeing occurring. What are you noticing? What is important to kind of keep our eyes and ears open towards? I mean, I think there's a couple of things that I'm paying attention to. One is we still can't not talk about COVID. It looks like, for the most part, its impacts will be sort of temporary. You know, it it really did shut down largely international mobility for the better part of a year. And in some countries, particularly in Australia, New Zealand, for close to three, just because of the timing and government policies there. It sort of froze a lot of mobility in place, essentially. You know, you had students who could come to study abroad and were stuck in their home country. So some of the students who were stuck in the countries in which they were studying and were unable to return home. That I think is probably mostly over, but I do think that mobility was a little slower in some places to restart. Um, and I think one question we have, which I, I cannot answer, is does this change how families think about mobility and does this change their calculus of things? If their children were overseas very far away, will this make them more interested, for example, in, in sending their children to study? closer to home. So could it, for example, spur regional mobility within Asia? So that's that's a big one. And, and I hope that someday soon I will stop having to talk about COVID, but I think that's just the reality. Mm -hmm. Historically, there were a couple of very big um, destination countries that reputationally were attracting a lot of students. I think that there's much more competition and students are attracted for many more reasons to different countries. So you're seeing both countries that can leverage things like a pathway to work, a more calm geopolitical climate. 
you probably have a bird's eye view on this more than I do, Kelly, but you know, the the rise of English language programs in non-English speaking countries that have attracted large numbers of international students. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I'm keeping an eye on. I mentioned it a second ago, but I do think for a long time, we've thought about international students as sort of a separate stream, but I think it's inevitable and it's become very clear that they are affected by geopolitics, both by tensions and rhetoric, but by also actual policies. And there are a number of countries that, for example, have made international students more a focus of policy choices. And I think, and many people would say, unfortunately, part of some political debates, for example, around China. We can we can talk more about some of the other reasons that students might be going abroad and might be studying internationally. But I think those are some of the big, very high level ideas that I'm, I'm paying attention to. Yeah, there's two things that you mentioned. I mean, one is certainly the the geopolitics. I'm personally quite interested in this. And I have a friend who there's there's no reason to believe anything he says. I say that very fondly. He's a good friend of mine. But he, he does say that <laughs> he thinks that we are entering a time where where countries are starting to kind of close off. So we were in this period of growing globalization, and now maybe we're seeing a reverse. And I think you see that in some ways. I was just talking with one of my professors about how these political tensions also suddenly impact academia. And it could be in terms of not just student flows, because sure, when Russia invades Ukraine, for example, you probably are more concerned about sending students, say, from the U.S. to Russia. Completely understandable. But then it also ends up impacting research in some cases. And you see that also with Norway and Russia. But you also see that with the U.S. and China, as you mentioned. And you also said that there might be more opportunities for kind of interregional instead of China and India just sending to the typical Canada, the U.S the UK, more interregional exchanges. And I think that that's something that is definitely a growing interest in other regions. I mean, there's a lot of push for the South-South collaboration. So countries in Latin and South America wanting to really increase the amount of students that they send to each other's countries. And you see that a little bit, especially kind of in the research or the the PhD exchange, right, in Africa and in sub-Saharan Africa specifically as well. I've just kind of said all of this, and I'm curious, what do you think of that? And how is this going to kind of play out for the students who are mobile as well? I think that you're hitting on an important point, which is that there were settled ways that we talked about mobility and sort of expectations that we've had that for a number of, of reasons you've hit on have, have become, this world of international education has become less settled. And so I, I think we're in a moment of, of a lot of change and we're not entirely sure what that's going to look like and how it's going to affect mobility. Just take one example. Most Western countries, they tell their citizens not to go to Russia. And so that has affected student mobility. It's affected, as you know, research mobility. It's affected short-term study. It's affected scholarship in both directions. What does that mean? Do people no longer study Russia, for example? Do they no longer do research in Russia? Or do they do it in different ways? Do we see a rise of research continuing but happening in more virtual spaces? Do we see people thinking about studying Russia more now in context? And so perhaps they're not getting, they're not going to Moscow, but perhaps they're going to other Russian speaking countries, whether they're doing that to study language or they're doing, they're studying Russia within the context of its relationships with its former satellite countries, for example. China, for example, has also, um, for reasons, both because of the pandemic, 
was cut off for a, for a while, and, and geopolitics obviously being the other big reason. Most students return to, to China. China, while we talk about it as a, a outbound mobility country, has actually increased its inbound mobility a lot from, as you say, Africa, from elsewhere in Asia. What does that look like? Do those student numbers return? Perhaps it looks like they probably will, but in terms of Western countries, Taiwan is making a real big bid for students from China. So I think those are those are the kinds of questions. So even though you're giving your friend a hard time, I think he, he might have a point in that we are in this like time of uncertainty. I don't think that means that we're not going to see these these longstanding trends continue. But I think, could we see things happening at the margins that, that are happening for geopolitical reasons? They're happening perhaps for reasons of access as well, that kind of change some of the ways that we think about mobility ex- and exchange, both of students, but of ideas as well. All right. So maybe my friend's right. I don't like admitting that because it makes me sad, actually. <laughs> I know it's fine that he's right, but I, it makes me a little bit sad because there's something about the world being interconnected and not progressing us more and more towards peace, ideally, hopefully, maybe, I don't know. But I kind of believe in that, I suppose. And so the idea of us turning inward makes me sad. And going back to kind of seeing students as means of having those bridges, it makes me wonder, you know, what is what is the role of universities? What is the role of any affiliated sort of companies or organizations in terms of trying to continue to facilitate maybe those bridges despite kind of these geopolitical tensions? But I am going to use that also kind of as a as a segue and just to, into the kind of the next question, which is about an article that you published in 2019, How International Education's Golden Age Lost Its Sheen. And I remember reading this. I was very new to, to my role as a study abroad advisor in the U.S. Thought I knew a lot. <laughs> I remember going, oh, but that can't be true. Um, and the more I thought and the more I read about it, and I remember listening to you speak about it actually at the NAFSA conference, I sort of went, this is, this is interesting. But you, in, that, in that article, you talked about how there was a decline in internationalization. So now we've had the pandemic and we've had the reaction to that period of time in 2020. It's 2023. We're talking about these geopolitical tensions. Do you still agree with what you described then? Have things changed? I think the answer is I'm not certain. I think in many ways that COVID sort of obscured for a couple of years some of those longer standing debates because for both inbound and outbound mobility, it was sort of a period of almost, not to put a too fine point on it, but existential crisis. Everybody was sort of stuck in what was that going to look like? For fundamentally, for people who work in international education, when you don't have mobility, what what do you, what is your, your role really? And so um, I think for, for a time, we just focused on, on COVID. And as I said earlier, COVID might might affect things in a, in a way because I think it might open doors for other things. Um, but let me talk first about those kind of longer standing trends. We should stipulate that that piece was written in certainly from the, the, the context of the American higher education system. But, you know, some of the forces are unfortunately present in many countries these days, which is sort of a rising inwardness, sort of a, a rising nationalism in some countries, uh, the rise of authoritarian leaders who sort of harness those ideas of nationalism. 
there are people who would who would tell me that in the U.S. every year, every fall, there's um, data that's released about the numbers of international students and numbers who come into different colleges and the numbers of students that these colleges send abroad. And there there were a lot of colleges that said to me, we used to put out press releases touting, you know, how great we were because we were so mobile and we were sending all these students to study abroad and we got in, you know, all we welcomed all these international students and we thought this was a point of pride. And now we don't want to do that because we're operating in a context where global is kind of a dirty word and we we don't want to, we just feel like we can't in the current environment say those things. And so I think, unfortunately, some of those, those things are true. I think the other thing that I wrote about as being kind of this underlying issue is, is in part kind of what we just, we were talking about at the top of our conversation, which is that we define being an international student in a way that's very tied to mobility. And I think likewise, we often talk about international education in a way that's very tied to mobility. And so when you think about what happens more broadly on campus, I think one of the challenges is if you're really just making international education all about kind of the exchange of, or largely about the exchange of students, then does it take hold more in the curriculum, in the ethos and mission of, of the institution? And that that was sort of some of the, the things that I was getting at more broadly in that piece. Let me just circle back very quickly to this idea about COVID. One thing that it did on some university campuses was that it was this pause and that people had to actually think about their strategies and their ways of being international. And so in some places, I do think that it may has maybe interjected a little bit more intentionality than there, there once was. And so there could be some, some benefits to that. And maybe that is an answer to this, you know, to a rejoinder to, to that 2019 piece of, of you know, institutions and being more thoughtful about why it's mission critical for them to be global. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I remember I was a study abroad advisor and also a career services advisor. So I wasn't in a position where I necessarily had to justify, you know, why I was still at the university. But I remember that being part of the conversation. Some of it stemmed out of fearing for their jobs for completely understandable reasons, because people were getting laid off and universities were in a tight financial spot. But I agree with you. It did really make people think really deeply and holistically about what that means and what they can do about it and what the goals are and how you facilitate those on campus. So I think that's, yeah, it's one of those silver linings. I wish I feel like it's something we said all the time during the <laughs> pandemic. I think we, uh, for our own mental stability, yeah. we all needed to grasp for those things, right? Exactly. Some sort of optimism. But I like this point you make too, that now at this point of having the pandemic have happened, But what I liked about what you pointed out there is that there's kind of this maybe an existential crisis happening. And I kind of like that lens for what we're going to be doing on the podcast, because not all of it is going to be about post-2020. Some of it will be looking at things before to kind of give a, a comparison to some of these other conversations. But I think it will be kind of interesting to take that perspective of just what is happening with student mobility around the world in this crux of all of these things that we've talked about, of COVID, of these geopolitics, of different motivations of, of the different actors. 
So we're going to be discussing these trends with practitioners and researchers. It's going to be a very interesting sort of collection of people who we talk with, which I'm looking forward to. And we are going to be doing some comparison, like I said, about tuition fees related to international students. We are going to be speaking with someone about the exchange partnerships between China and the continent of Africa. We're going to be looking at India and very much kind of what their plans are now. So it's it's going to be interesting. And I would love to know what you're most curious to learn about from these conversations and what kind of questions you also have about what they might say or what they might bring to the table. I mean, I think there are a few things just picking up on a couple of thoughts that, that you just articulated. One is by and large, mobility is something for the resourced, right? You go abroad, you're mobile because either you are very bright and somebody pays for you to go abroad, whether it's your the institution that you study at or perhaps your home government. The fact is most globally mobile students are, they're self-funded. And so what is what does it mean as the economy shifts, countries shift, you know, some countries both send more students into the middle class, but currency devaluations occur. How does that change the, the dynamics? Does that change the kinds of institutions or even countries that that can attract students, who the students are? So that's something I'm really interested in seeing. So much of this conversation has been dominated over the last decade, decade and a half by China. And so we're, I think we need to talk more about, you know, a number of the other countries that or, or regions that you mentioned, India, Africa, elsewhere in Southeast Asia. What, what does that mean? How does post-China, not post-COVID, international mobility look like? And then the, one of the, the other questions I have is, is just about the place we started, which is the, the definitions of, of who an international student is and this is a place where I'm interested to see if you does does COVID have longer standing impacts? Because one thing COVID certainly underscored was that educational provision does not have to be always in person and that there may be ways of, of delivering education internationally without necessarily banking on the, the global movement of students. And certainly this is not a new idea. A number of countries do a lot of what's called transnational education. Um, in fact, British universities award more degrees to international students who never actually come to the UK than students who actually would qualify under our, the definitions we've been talking about as internationally mobile. But what does that mean for access? Because as, just to circle back to the point, I mean, international education has been something of relative privilege. And I think that there's a lot more discussions that certainly universities are having in a domestic context about access that I, I expect they will begin to have in an international context more and more and more. And so what, what does that look like? How do you expand access? And, and how do you reach a broader group of students who can certainly benefit from the prestige of an international degree or just studying internationally is going to be the option, the opportunity to get a degree because of lack of, of options at home. And so I think how do we wrestle with that broadly as, as a field is going to be one of the big challenges for the next several decades. And I think that access is also so dependent also on what individual countries end up doing. So it's beyond just international higher education. It's the whole of higher education and policy priorities. So 
Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be really interesting. And as I mentioned, we are going to be looking at kind of a tuition comparison too, which lends right to the question of the economics. And it all, a lot of these conversations are going to come back to politics too. But I think that thinking about the definition of, of international students and, and what that means, what it means to study or get a degree from another country, etc. Things that we'll definitely discuss uh, it'll be interesting to see what the findings, so to speak, are. <laughs> I hope we deliver. I mean, <laughs> to your point about politics, we've been talking about politics in a negative sense, primarily. We have. Um, I, I will acknowledge that. <laughs> but 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 I mean, I would be interested in the kinds of conversations that you you might have about the ways that that um, the politics, the national strategies can further international education as well. So especially that you're having some of these much more global conversations that there's real potential there. And I'll be interested to hear what you hear. Absolutely. Well, Karen, thank you so much for being our introduction episode to this season. Um, I think it was a great, a great conversation and kind of a great groundwork for what is ahead. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, thanks for inviting me, Kelly. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and feel free to leave us a rating or a comment links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take a position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Maria Onles Hidalgo, Ayla Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, Liana Sofia Riano Sanchez, and Petar Vujicic. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. This podcast was recorded at Helga Engshus at the University of Oslo's Faculty of Educational Sciences. Thanks to IDEA, Innovation and Digitalization in Educational Arenas, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>